But I have to confess to you that I've been sitting under the weight of the word this week and I've felt it weigh down on my chest and my heart quite heavily this morning. I think what we're going to read in James chapter 2 is challenging, convicting and hard for us to hear because what James reveals to us is that it's not just probable but very likely that there are people who turn up to church every week who can pray prayers, who can speak the Christian language and are not saved. And so as I've been preparing the sermon this week and as I've been sitting in the Word and praying myself, it's been a wrestle because I feel like I'm on the edge of a razor line. Because I feel like there's two groups of people that this, this kind of... So there's two groups of people. One, the young or the immature in faith. Those, so if you've come to our church or you've become a Christian in the last six months, you can hear a sermon like this and it feels like you've gone to the gym for the very first time and someone's given you a barbell with 110 kilos and told you to lift and you're about to lift and it falls on your neck and you break your neck. Right? That's what a message like this can feel like can snuff your wick out. And I want to encourage you to trust in progress and not perfection. But there's another group that I think that James 2 is written for. See, James was written to uh, potentially a Jewish audience. It says it was written to the dispersion. But it was mostly written to people who had an orthodox faith, who believed in Jesus. And yet the kind of people that James is writing to are the kind of people who turn up to church each and every week and can say the prayers and can read their Bible, but they have no affection for Jesus. They have no love for him. And you look at their lives and there's no obedience. So what do you do when someone says they love Jesus, but they have no affection for him? They have no obedience to him. That's the question that James is trying to answer this morning. So I want to pray this morning that if that seems like you, if you're here this morning and you're already thinking about what kind of burger you're going to order at lunch and how long I'm going to go for till you can grab your burger, this message is probably for you. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray on our knees. You can join me if you want. I want to pray that God would not let us escape this morning without turning the spotlight on ourselves. So let's pray. Father, you are a holy God, and you desire holiness from us. Father, we know we are not perfect. We know we need your Son. But we also know that when you call us, you call us to live as if you are our King. And that means being obedient. We know that when you call us, you give us a new heart, and new affections, and new desires. So, Father, I pray this morning for those who call themselves Christians yet have no affections and no desires. Let them not escape from you this morning. Father, I pray that your word, which is a cutting two-edged sword, cuts our hard hearts this morning. And, Father, encourage those who are young in the faith, who need encouragement, not just conviction. Father, we pray for them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, 
the book of James was written to the 12 tribes of Israel. It, James says it's written to the dispersion. And so that can mean a couple of things that we try, have to try and balance. One, it's maybe written to a Jewish audience. So the 12 tribes of Israel, they're Jews. Um, and the dispersion were the dispersed Jewish nation all across. But James is also written quite late. So it's also highly likely that he was just writing to every Christian everywhere. Okay, so that's helpful to remember. And Albert said that the book is a bit random, and I think that's a bit of an understatement. See, I get to work with youth each and every week. I get to um, hang out with them and talk with them. And there's a number of young people in our church. I'm trying to work out what that's hitting. Um, there's a number of young people in our church and in our youth community. HD kids just you know, bringing out as much knowledge as they can to help us. And I like that because I've got ADHD and so it's helpful for me. Um, and so that's encouraging, but it's also meant that the book of James has been a theological battleground because James is sometimes not super precise with his words. So Martin Luther, John I said last week, called it an, an epistle of straw. So epistle is a letter written to encourage. And he just said, it's like straw. There's nothing of substance in it. There's nothing good in it. Don't worry about it. Ignore it. And I think uh, for a lot of theological students and theologians, the book is difficult, but it's actually really good for normal people like you and me because it's very practical, which I like. But it also means that we need to define words and um, just help ourselves out in that way. Because words can be ambiguous sometimes. For instance, if I say that I like the rock and I'm talking to a young person, well, that can mean several things. Maybe it means I like Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Maybe it means I like geology. Maybe it just means I like rock music. But depending on the context, changes how we view. So there's some words in the book of James that we just need to think deeply and thoughtfully about. But it's helpful to remember that the book of James was primarily, primarily written to outline what counterfeit faith looks like. The number one thing that James does time and time again is he draws contrasts between true religion and the fake religion. Those who are truly following Jesus and those who say they do, but their lives look nothing like it. So that's what we want to do this morning. What does it look like to truly make all of life all about Jesus? And so the way that we do that in this church is that we go through books of the Bible, we go through chapters of the Bible. There's Bibles all around you. If you don't own one, that one's now yours. Um, It's finders keepers, but there's no weepers. Okay, so we're just going to read a couple of verses and then I'll talk a little bit about it and explain and explore it. So we're going to start in James chapter 2. My brothers... And sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not become discriminatory amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
So James starts out commending them, saying, Brothers, we are all takers of the faith. We believe in Jesus Christ. Do not show favoritism. Now, I don't know if this is showing my age or not, but I remember when I was in primary school and what we did with organized sports. See, we, I, didn't, I had one place where I had a proper sports team, but everything else that I did throughout the week was just me and my mates getting together and playing sports. And the way that we did this is that we'd get together in a big group and you'd choose two captains and the captains would get to pick the teams, right? And so I know it's hard to believe, but I was once not as good looking as I am now. See, I was, a, I was 100 kilos as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I was a big kid. And so I didn't have the aerobic capacity uh, that I do now. And so I was never one of the first kids chosen. Instead, it was me and my friend Jacob. And Jacob had glasses and poor uh, hand-eye coordination. And so it was always a big thing between us who would get picked first. But we know, uh, picked last, sorry. Because we know that we'd definitely not get picked first. See, the people who get picked first were the strong kids, the kids who played football on the outside, or the kids who could mark, or the kids who were skillful. And I was big and clumsy, and my mum taught me how to kick a football. Legitimately. She actually taught me how to kick a football. My, My dad kicks worse than her, which is saying a lot. And so organized sports for me was this opportunity to go, man, how terrible am I? And so what James is saying is don't treat church like organized sports where you pick two captains and when the strongest and the fastest and the most athletic and the most skillful come in, you shower them with praise and when the fat kid who gets taught how to kick by his mum comes in, you say, just go stand in the goal square. You can't do any damage there. He's saying it's not like that. Do not show favoritism. And I love what he says next, the way that he clarifies it, because he doesn't just say, don't show favoritism. This is what he says in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He's saying, have you forgotten where you came from? How can we who have been shown grace thus show favoritism? We who must be considered weak to now favor the strong. We who've been shown as foolish to now consider the wise. Jesus is saying, remember the gospel. Because before the gospel, everyone's equal. Everyone equally needs Jesus. Everyone equally needs grace. Everyone equally needs forgiveness. And so when we come to church, there should be no division. No division at all. In the body of Christ, there must be no division based on economic differences, based on the wealth or the way that we dress, based on how much we weigh or what we look like or our color of our skin. That's what Paul, uh, James is writing about. Have you forgotten your standing before God? Because it seems like you have. You know why he's writing it? Because you know who else does that? 
who judges based on economic standing and based upon the way we look and how much we weigh and how nice our clothes are. Everybody else. Everybody else does that. And I know that because I grew up poor. Like, not like poor, poor, but like as in there were weeks where we could not afford the groceries. And I know what it feels like to be seen as different because you can't afford things or because you can't go on trips or because you haven't had the incredible holiday that week or that that summer. I know what that feels like. And uh, James is saying, don't do it. Remember the gospel. Remember your standing before God. Goes on in verse verse 6. You have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Verse 7. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So James is saying, basically, guys, you're saved by grace and you come to a place where the foot of the cross is equal for everyone and then you go sidling up to the rich and the famous and those who are throwing our brothers and sisters in jail and cutting off their heads and throwing you into court. What is going on? Even now, this is a curse in the church, we have a fatal attraction to being liked. One of the number one websites for young Christians is called Relevant. And why is that? Because we want to be relevant to the world. Yes, there's a place for that. There's a place for speaking the gospel truths in timely ways, according to our context. But even in the book of James... It's a fatal attraction to being liked by the world, to wanting what the rich people have, to wanting what the famous people have and the powerful people have. And James says, not with you. You bring dishonor amongst the poor. God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. Other passages in Scripture, and say in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, God has chosen the weak to shame the strong and the foolish to shame the wise. So if you stand on the side of the strong and the wise, you will be shamed at the end of days. Why? Because God uses the weak and the poor and the slow of speech to show that it is him who works and not us. So we keep reading on, verse 8 to 13. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is Jesus saying? What is the royal law? Well, where does royal law come from? Royal law comes from the king. 
And so who is our king? Jesus is our king. For every Christian, Jesus is the king. And therefore, the king gives commandments and decrees. And his people follow him and worship him. So when Jesus says the royal law, uh, so when James says the royal law, what he's saying is, remember what Jesus said for you guys to do. You should do it. But then he introduces uh, a classic uh, conundrum in the Old Testament, which is basically, if you want to keep the law, you've got to keep all of it. If you don't keep all of it, you've become a law breaker. Throughout the Old Testament, um, the classic paradigm for judgment has been an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What, shall, what you have done shall be given back to you. What you sow, you shall reap. And what James is saying, friends, it's like speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Saying, friends, if you do not be merciful, mercy will not be given to you. If you're not loving, love will not be given to you. That's how it's always classically been. But I think what he's really getting at is that if you have been shown mercy upon mercy upon mercy, if you've dwelled richly on the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for you, how can you possibly treat others with disdain? You obviously don't believe what you think you believe. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as someone who has been saved by grace and grace alone. Not as someone who worked for it. Tim Keller has a great quote from his book, Gospel in Life. We'll have on the screen. He says this, A merely religious person who believes that God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I have worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That is the language of the moralist's heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God, and I am completely equal with all other people. This is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. Grace leads to grace. If you have grasped it, you should display it. And so we head on. So when I said before that the book of James is a theological battleground, it's mainly been about the next sort of couple of verses, the next 10 or so verses. Classically, over the years, this has been a struggle, but I don't think, I think it's clearer than it seems to be. So we're just going to read it to the end, and then we'll talk about it. By the way, I didn't mention this at the start. If you have questions, if you've heard something which you're not sure about, text your question through. We, we answer all of them. We use them in our small groups. And especially over the next 20, 30 minutes, text a question in if you're unsure about something. So let's read from 14 to 26. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Here's why this passage is difficult for us. Because if you look at it at a cursory glance, you could come to the conclusion that everything that I've ever preached at this church is false. False that everything that Jonah has ever said at this church is false. Because you get from a cursory glance at this text, two battle axes grinding against each other, because James clearly says that you're justified by your works and not by faith alone. Whereas laced throughout the rest of Scripture is the great truth that we are justified by faith alone. So how do you reconcile something like Ephesians 2? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well, how do you, how do you build that together with the next verse on the slide? James 2.24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It seems like Paul's saying, you're saved by faith alone and not by your works. And James is saying, No, you actually need works to add to your faith. and Otherwise, it's not complete. How do we wrestle with that? Because the reality is, if faith has to add works to be saved, then we are in deep trouble. If works have to be added to faith, then we are still under the law. We're still under the law of God, and we're still completely unable to fulfill the law of God. Check the Ten Commandments. I bet you've failed them even this morning. If we are still under the law, then there is no grace in Christ. There is no freedom in the cross. There is no forgiveness in Jesus. There's no eternity, no heaven, no fullness of life. It is still out of reach. So how do we reconcile these seemingly irreconcilable statements? I think... We say it like this, true, saving, lasting, enduring faith must lead 
to good works. If it does not, it is not true, saving, enduring faith. Let me say it again. True, saving, enduring faith must lead to good works. I've got a couple of examples for us. First comes from a guy, Charles Spurgeon. He's one of my best friends. He died about 200 years ago, but he writes me letters a lot, and I read them. So he wrote this. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Whether it hath apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life. But the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes there is no bud, and when the summer comes there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it is dead, and you are correct, it is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of leaves is proof that it is dead. So too it is with the professor. says the professor for anyone who thinks they're saved but isn't. If he has life, that life must give fruits, and if not fruits, then works. If his faith has a root, But if there be no works, then depend upon it that the inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. It's not that works save us. It's just without works, there's no proof that we are saved. It's like a tree. The root is what gives it life. But if there is a root and it is alive, it must bear fruit or leaves. It was said another way by um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is a great book called Discipleship. Everyone should read it. And he starts off his book like this. Let me just find it. Almost read the preface. That's not what I want. This comes from his opening chapter called Costly Grace. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church, and our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means graces, bargain basement goods, cut-rate forgiveness, cut-rate comfort, cut-rate sacrament. Grace is the church's inexhaustible pantry, from which it is doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It is grace without a price, without cost. It is said that the essence of grace is that the bill for it has been paid in advance for all time. Everything can be had for free, courtesy of the paid bill. The price paid is infinitely great, and therefore the possibilities of taking advantage of and wasting grace are also infinitely great. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace means grace as doctrine, as principle, as system. It means forgiveness of sins as a general truth. It means God's love as merely a Christian idea of God. Those who affirm it have already had their sins forgiven. The world finds in this church a cheap cover-up for their sins, for which it shows no remorse, and for which it has even less desire to be set free. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living, incarnate Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It is the costly pearl 
for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out your eye for causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and the gift which has to be asked for, the door which when one has to knock. It is costly because it calls people to discipleship and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs people their lives and it is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of God's Son, because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give, uh, give him up in order to make us live. Costly grace. I think that's the tension. We are saved by grace, which leads to good works. And the grace that we are saved under is costly. It calls us to die. It calls us to follow. It calls us to obedient. But that's why we trust in progress and not perfection. Jesus calls us to be faithful and obedient and not perfect. That's how we handle these two tensions. True, lasting, saving faith leads to good works. So let's, let's keep going with the verses. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, verse 14, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Rhetorical question. The answer is no. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Here's one thing that James is not saying and one thing that he is saying. He's not saying let's advocate communism, that we're all equal and like, as in, we all just share all of our goods. So it's not like a brother, you have a really nice suit and another brother has clothes from Target and that you should give the brother from Target your clothes. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that if there is needy people amongst you, people without clothes, without homes, without food, and you say to them, just go and be well fed. I'll pray for you. Then your hypocrisy reeks of a deceitful heart. Prayer is good, but sometimes we can be the answer to prayer. Sometimes God actually just calls us to be obedient. So when there is someone amongst us, someone amongst us, who needs food or needs a house or needs clothes. We're not called just to pray for them, but to provide for them. It means when a brother has been kicked out of home or has gone down on his luck that you open up your house and provide a bed. It means that when someone can't afford their groceries and you know about it, you don't just say, I'll pray for you. You say, come and eat with me. And if you do not... 
your faith is dead. Joe's just finished a, se- a series on money. And I wasn't there because I was out with the kids. And that was good fun. But here's my understanding of why God gives us money. God gives us money to grow the kingdom of God. So if you have cash, if you have a house, if you have food, if you have a savings account, use it for the glory of God and for advancing the kingdom, not so that you have a boat. Because boats can't save people, but the kingdom can. All right, I've got to find where I am now. So, verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So, James introduces an antagonist. So, someone has entered the scene and if James is anything like uh, a lot of people I know and a lot of preachers I know, then he's probably a little bit passive-aggressive. So, this is probably a conversation that has been had earlier on in the day or early on the week. And... James is probably being a little passive-aggressive. So someone has come to him. Someone, I'm not sure who that someone could be, Bill. Someone has come trying to divide faith and works. Silly Bill. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It goes on. You believe that there is one God, that is good, but even the demons believe that and shudder. James is writing to those within the church who are filled with knowledge but are not saved. The crusty, old, predominantly men who think that by compiling doctrine, who think that by compiling as much wisdom, as much information in their brains as possible, that they can be saved. But James reveals the horrifying truth is that Satan and his demons have great theology too. They've got a great theological understanding of God and that's why they shudder. They know who God is. They know that God is one. They know this all. They don't believe. They don't believe at all. They're on the opposite side. You can be filled with knowledge and understanding and not be a Christian. That should scare some of you this morning. You can go to Bible college and not be a Christian. You can read the Bible from front to back and not be a Christian. You can come to church each and every week and be able to talk about high theological terms like superlaptinarianism. I didn't even say it right. That's terrible, right? You can talk about the Reformed tradition and the doctrines of grace like irresistible grace and limited atonement. You can talk about regeneration but you might not be regenerated. You might not be saved. That should scare some of us. It's not knowledge that saves. God has used the slow of mind to fool the wise. It goes on. He uses two examples that are sort of contrasts what he was saying before about the person who would not provide and the person who does not have faith or the, de- the demons that do not have faith. And he uses two people, one of which should be uh, quite common to all of us, 
father Abraham. Now, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard of Abraham before, right? He's like the dude in the Old Testament. We sing songs about him, right? Your father Abraham has many sons, and many sons says, Father Abraham, for I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, left leg, nod your head. But you know what I actually love? I love the fact that he uses Rahab as an example, because no one sings songs about Rahab the prostitute. Well, I'm in charge of the kids' ministry, so maybe we'll start singing songs about Rahab the prostitute. Suzanne just about had a heart attack. Right? And now all the parents are going to have to go home and explain to their kids what a prostitute is. So you are welcome, friends. (laughs) So he uses Abraham and Rahab. And I love it because Abraham is a faithful man. Yes, he stuffs up all the time. He lies. But through and through, when it comes to the crunch, Abraham is an obedient, faithful servant of the living God. He leaves his home. He trusts in God when he can't have a child. Abraham is a good servant. But Rahab, what about Rahab? She's a prostitute. She's been taken advantage of by men. She's been despised her whole life. You think about the Old Testament time, women who were princesses and queens were second-rate citizens. Think about what would happen if you were a prostitute in that kind of society, right? And yet James holds up Rahab as an example of obedience and faithfulness because Rahab, when the crunch came, she provided. When the Israelites came to spy she provided. And it just, it makes me think, right? You know what some of the most miraculous testimonies to me are? They always start with, I grew up in a Christian family. Right? And you're like, surely not. Maybe you mean the witch, or like the drug addict, or the prostitute. But here's the truth. The witch and the drug addict and the prostitute know that they need the grace of God. They desperately know it. They've reached the end of themselves. But the kid who's grown up in church, man, he can put on the language. He can put on the church clothes. And he can, you know, nice himself up and make himself look good and say all the right things and not be saved. And that scares me. I was talking with one of our youth on Tuesday night. So Tuesday night we have tribes and we gather together and we have small groups. And uh, this guy is a new convert. So he, um, super strange story, non-Christian home, no affiliation with the church, decides one summer that he and his brother want to go to CYC camps, so Christian youth camps. Just like, that sounds like a good idea. Gets saved, now leads at CYC camps. Say. 16-year-old guy, strong in the faith, just really energetic. And I was talking with him because he came at three o'clock after school before tribes and I said to him, hey man, how are you, how's it going at home? Because I know that home has been difficult for you. Your dad's an atheist and your mum is like tolerant, but she doesn't really care. Sort of like the person, you know, he's sort of like the, the family who he comes home and says, I'm a Christian. And they go, oh, that's good. Uh, hopefully you grow out of that like it's a wart or something, right? And he said to me, yeah, you know, it it is actually really difficult to be a Christian in my home. 
because I don't have an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus at home. And I find opposition at home, and my mum doesn't like it when I read the Bible too much. But I've actually discovered it to be a blessing in disguise because I have to own my faith. If I don't follow Jesus, no one will encourage me to. Yes, Jimmy, you're, you're chasing after me, but I see you for a couple of hours a week. And my family sees me for far more than that. And unless I want Jesus, I'm not going to be able to follow him. And I love that. Right? I love that. Because that's so often missing in kids who've grown up in Christian homes and can learn the language and whose hearts look nothing like Jesus. I was reading a book this week called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a tale of Rosaria Butterfield. Um, Great name. She's a former LGBTI professor um, who was an avid lesbian. She was taught gender theory and queer theory at university. She started uh, researching the religious right and um, she started talking with the pastor over two years and she got saved. Um, And like, it's just crazy. It's an incredible book just so filled with encouragement from reading it. Conversion didn't fit my life. Conversion overhauled my soul and my personality. It was arduous and intense. I experienced with great depth the power and authority of God in my life. In it I learnt, and I'm still learning, how to love God with all my heart and my soul and my strength and my mind. This line is incredible. When you die to yourself, you have nothing from your past to use as clay out of which to shape your future. That's what repentance looks like. And so I don't want, if you're a parent here, I don't want you to go home and never talk to your kids about Jesus again. I want them to learn the language and I want them to learn how to pray and I want them to learn how to read their Bible and I want them to follow Jesus. And sometimes that looks like them trying stuff on before they go all in. But don't forget to tell them about repentance. If you do not confess your sins, then what are you saved from? Tell them that Jesus loves them, yes, but tell them that Jesus saved them from their evil and wicked hearts that above all else desire evil. Because the number one conversation that I have with parents when they come, when kids come to about the age of 17, 18, and they've been brought up in Christian homes all their life, and suddenly they, you know, they go through a process called individuation and they don't want to be like their parents anymore, and so they cast off their parents' religion, and they say, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. And the, the parents come to me and say, I don't know what we did, We taught them about good Christian morals. We taught them about Christianity. Al Mola has a quote. He says, Hell will be filled with people that seem to have good Christian morals and decidedly unchrist saving hearts. You can have good morals, you can dress it up, but unless you're saved by Christ, you are not saved. Now, true faith will lead to good works, but good works alone do not save. That's challenging. That should challenge you. There are people who go on Facebook and share 
the latest Christian meme and the type amen if you see this. And they've got the postcards about faith. Yet they do not understand this truth. You're not saved by your morals. You're saved by a new heart, which leads to new desires and new thoughts and new behaviors and new loves. That's how James balances this tension. So, if you are here this morning and you have no desire to follow Jesus, if you have no desire to progress in your faith, if you have no desire to improve your understanding of who Jesus is, if you've got no desire whatsoever to follow Christ, then stop calling yourself a Christian because you aren't. You can come to church and you can read your Bible and you can pray the prayers and you can even pray the sinner's prayer. But unless you, if you don't want Jesus, if you don't want to cut off sin in your life, if you don't want to be with him and make all of life all about him, stop calling yourself a Christian because you're not. Just stop it. There are people here who have been church attenders since birth, whether they are now 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, and have been able to wrap themselves in a robe of churchiness, but are not saved. That should horrify us. And I know this to be true because I've heard the stories of countless friends, men and women, who were elders in their church and who were deacons in their church. And even a friend of mine who I talked to, who was a youth pastor for five years before he heard the gospel and got down on his knees and said, Jesus, I am a sinner. Can you please save me? He was in the church for five years. This is Tim Hawkins. He led the largest youth ministry in Sydney for ages. If you're under 25, you might know of his son, Josh. He invented like the backwards flipping thing. You can look it up on YouTube. Led in the church, led a ministry, was not saved. Did not trust in Jesus. Had all the right things, said all the right things, was not a Christian. And so where does that leave us this morning? Friends, if you feel no desire for Jesus, if you feel no affection for him, if you think about the gospel and you're not filled with gratitude and thankfulness, and maybe you're not even filled, if there's just nothing in you, if you just feel a numbness about your faith and about Jesus and about following him, if you feel nothing, then the thing that you need to do is to cast yourself down on your knees and beg God for forgiveness and ask him to save you. God, creator of all that is and was and all that will be, can you save me from myself? Can you save me from the fact that I don't love you, from the fact that I don't desire you, from the fact that I've got no works in my life that show that I'm a follower of you? Father, I thought that I was a Christian and I've discovered for the first time that I'm not. Friends, 
That's what repentance looks like. So whether you've been in the church for 50 years or five, whether you thought you were a Christian or not, think deeply about your heart this morning. Do I desire God? Do I want God? Do I have affections for Christ? Do I love the gospel? Is there anything at me at all that responds to this this morning? And if not, God, I need to be saved because I'm not. God is faithful to finish the work he started. It's the great truth is that even when we don't desire God, God provides ways back for us. He's stirring our affections when we don't want our affections stirred. He's capturing our hearts when we don't want our heart captured. This could be an opportunity this morning to respond to him. So I'm going, to, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray on my knees for you. And then Sarah's going to get up and she's going to sing a song for us. It's called White as Snow. It's based off Psalm 51. And I want you to use this time and the subsequent time that we use to sing our praises to God. Maybe you need to get on your knees and ask God for forgiveness. Maybe you need to, for the first time in your life, repent and believe the good news. But do not leave without considering the state of your soul. Do not leave. Do not be distracted by the promise of burgers or McDonald's or family lunch or kids, as beautiful as they are. Take two, three, four, five, ten minutes. Think about yourself in relation to God.